You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Pernell S. Bryce III. Pernell is the Chief Operating and Philanthropy Officer at Sips and Kicks, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping children have a healthy lifestyle by combining exercise and soccer with healthy nutrition. Pernell holds a BA from Duke University and a Master's of Government Administration from the University of Pennsylvania, with experience in both politics and the philanthropic space. At one time, Purnell set his sights on a legal career, but after a year in law school, he realized that it might not be the right path for him. So he withdrew without looking back and also without a concrete vision for his next professional chapter. To make ends meet, he took a job at a restaurant, but he still did not regret his decision. And eventually, an opportunity presented itself. Since that time, Purnell has left his mark at a number of organizations, and now he's looking ahead to his next phase of impacting the community for the better. So here's his story. Please enjoy. Welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. You know, I was saying before we got started um, that you were a recommendation of Takoa Hash, a good friend of mine. And one of the things about Takoa is everyone she has recommended to the show has been so great. Um, So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, wow. The pressure is on. So hopefully... (laughs) Hopefully I live up to it, you know. (laughs) One thing about this show, we always say it's just a conversation. It's like meeting for brunch and just two, you know, two folks talking. So don't don't feel any pressure for sure. And we're talking about you. Who knows your story better than you? That's right. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's get into it. Who is Pernell Bryce? Pernell Bryce the third, actually named after my father and grandfather. First and foremost, I'm a proud father of two young girls who are five and six, proud husband, um, and just an individual who has always been about helping others um, while pursuing pursuing my own dreams. And so uh, just learned about giving back from my parents and, and so have always had a personal constitution that no matter what I was doing or how I was... Uh, progressing on the way up that I always try to help, um, you know, cousins or, you know, people around me. So um, that's a little bit about who I am. So one thing I have learned in my own journey and through people that I've worked with is that often those who are really passionate about giving back uh, fall into one of the two categories. Not everybody, but a lot of people. One, they benefited from other people's benevolence. And now that they're in a position to help, they do. Or that was modeled for them through their elders um, and what they saw growing up and they want to carry that legacy forward. So you mentioned your, your family. If you can tell me a little bit more about your, you know, your upbringing and what kind of environment uh, you were reared in, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a small um, suburb Italian town called Berkeley Heights, New Jersey. Um, and, but I was the only one in my family born there. My, my immediate family's from Baltimore. And so my parents and my sister was eight years old. I mean, they're all, they all are from Baltimore. And so, uh, my parents, uh, my mother and father are both kind of overachievers for their side of the family. My mom was probably the first to go to college and grad school. My father, the same thing. And then throughout, um, you know, my extended family, 
you know, my sister, she was probably the third to go to college and I was probably the fourth. And so my father moved to New Jersey because he got a great opportunity with AT&T. He was an engineer. And so my life and my sister's life is markedly different than my cousins in Baltimore, you know? And so from an early age, I, uh, you know, I, I just saw that. And so my father did pretty well with AT&T. And so he was always going back and forth, helping out his mother, helping out family members. You know, um, he owned property and, um, you know, some of my relatives worked for him on the property or, you know, just trying to get people out of jam. So I always saw my father kind of being Superman. My mother, um, she was a social worker um, in Newark Public Schools for like over 30 years. So I have like extended siblings, right? So my mom was, you know, helping people in high school. They became my brothers, my sisters. So I saw my mom, you know, giving back in that way um, to kids who came from troubled homes. Um, and then also she uh, was a, a camp director uh, for the YWCA for about 10 years um, because she didn't want to see the camp close. And so they said, well, you run it. And so uh, I just saw my parents always just doing great stuff. And so I always felt that, um, and not really just to live up to their legacy, I just wanted to do it. You know, I just felt blessed to live, you know, the life that I had compared to my cousins, you know, so I, I never took it for granted. So one of the things when you hear stories like yours, first of all, let me say, having grown up in Jersey, like everybody knows somebody who worked at AT&T. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody has a connection to, to Bell Labs uh, through an engineer and admin. I feel like it was like the place to work back in the day. Um, but when you grow up in these families where uh, you are the product of two parents who took a different path, went to school, you know, at a time when it may not have been expected or as as common, um, there's often a divide, right? The, the rest of your family sort of looks at you as like, oh, those are our cousins over there. They live a different life. You know, they, they're the uppity folks, what have you. Even if, if you are helping them in some way or investing in them or remaining connected, do you, did you feel that line in the sand growing up? Yeah, I mean, for one, like, like I said, I was the only one who was born in New Jersey. And so my sister, growing up in Baltimore for seven or eight years, she had, you know, some connections with cousins. Um, but even she felt that probably after she moved to New Jersey. But for me, yeah, I always felt that um, with, you know, I would say majority of my cousins, some of my cousins, they just let me be a kid. But um, no, nah, for most of my cousins, like they just looked at me different. And, um, you know, some of it was, you know, jealous or envy because of my parents. And um, but and, and I was never like that type of, you know, um, silver spoon type kid. You know, I, I didn't show it off. But I, mean, I remember, you know, my cousins uh, tricking me to like my father would give my, my parents never just drop me off. They give me money, you know, so I could um, buy my own food or whatever. So, you know, my cousins would trick me into like giving them the money that my parents gave me. And, um, you know, because just different stuff like that. And uh and yeah, you know, as I got older, you know, because of having two parents and all that, I went to good high schools, I went to college. And so certain um, relatives were, um, I don't know, they, they bestowed, I don't know, praise and gifts on my sister and I because uh, we were doing well. And so, you know, other cousins were envious about that, too. And so, um, so yeah, yeah, no, I definitely felt it. I definitely felt mm -hmm. it. Okay, so interestingly, not you know, just you have that family dynamic as well, but you went to really great schools also. Um, and I, I realize you're a fellow Quaker. Uh, also, I went to Penn oh. undergrad. And oh. I remember what that experience was like for me uh, in that 
growing up, I had always gone to schools. You know, I had been in a situation where I was the token or one of a few. And then I went to a public high school that was a bit more diverse, but I had always been in these environments where uh, I knew I was different, but knew how to navigate that. Did you feel that going into college? And also, like, what were your aspirations when you got there? Yeah, you know, my father, you know, and um, I definitely have to credit him for a lot of, you know, what my sister and I have accomplished. Education-wise, I'd say, because he he was just, he wanted us to be a certain way. And so um, my sister went to Penn. And um, so leading up to that, so uh, we both went to this great, um, I don't know, great, but this uh, renowned uh, prep school called Exeter in New Hampshire, where a lot of presidents go. So we went there for the summer. So everything that my father put us in kind of prepared us for like, like you're saying, going into that type of environment. So going to Exeter, I went to Catholic high school. So, you know, I kind of dealt with being, you know, one of a few um, like I said, where I grew up, there wasn't that many. So when I got to Duke, that's where I went for my undergrad. It probably wasn't as much of a culture shock as it was for other people um, because I'd been through it before. But it was a culture shock just in terms of how people see you and how they talk to you and how they look at you being there. You know, um, around that time um, was the affirmative action um I don't know if it came about, but it was really in the news. So, you know, you had articles in the student newspaper like, oh, we're against affirmative action. We know certain people aren't here. And, you know, and I had, you know, I had done pretty well in school and on my SAT. So, you know, I was slightly offended. And um, and even if I didn't, I know that the people who were in my class of color, and I don't know their scores, but I know that without certain um policies left to their own devices, they wouldn't let my classmates in. Right. And so, um, so yeah, no, I, I, I was prepared, you know, probably, like I said, because of where I grew up and because of the academic scenarios that my father put us into. And, you know, having gone to prep school through eighth grade, I know Exeter well, Uh all of of the schools, most of my classmates went to boarding school high school that was not in the cards for me um I wasn't interested but that when you when you have been groomed in those environments even either through a summer program or otherwise um, it prepares you for the rigors of really great schools and schools that are not very diverse in a way that you're not necessarily going to to get otherwise and I've been having this conversation a lot both on the show uh and offline as well as we talk more about diversity and inclusion and you mentioned about your classmates but for certain programs may not necessarily having an opportunity. And when people come to me and they say, you know, I've had people say to me, but like, you've done it. You, you went to the good schools, you've worked in corporate America, you've climbed the ladder. Um, and my response to that is always yes. Right. And I'm, I'm who they look for when they sift through the resumes of, of people of color and diverse candidates, but I'm not the one who needs the leg up. Right. And, and I'm concerned about people who look like me, who may not have been in the summer programs, may not have gone to uh, the schools that I've went to and been groomed and prepared to function at a high level in these environments, but have talent and education and intelligence. And if given the opportunity, can flourish and the right support. And I feel like that is, there's more of a focus on that now and it's continuing. It's not great, but it's continuing to evolve. We still have work to do. But back then, I know people who floundered in those environments because you know, they just didn't have the support necessary, you know, to do so. Now you kind of hanging between the two worlds, um, having been around, you know, majority white environments, but also 
having family who may not have been on the same path. Did you feel caught between the two or did you feel a sense of belonging in one group or another or both during college? That's interesting. Um, I think in college, uh, yeah, I felt like I felt like I belonged. Right. I mean, you know, in terms of, you know, the dichotomy with the rest of my family, that's more so just when I'm with them, Mm -hmm. you know, but like. Well, I will say this, right? So I don't know what it was like when you went to college, but like, you know, when you start to meet people, where you're from, da da da, what part, where you go to school. So people like kind of part of it's it's curiosity, but then part of it, you know, naturally like, oh well, maybe they're like this. So when you say my town, Berkeley Heights, or I'm Seton Hall Prep, like, oh, oh, okay, so you're one of those, you're one of those Negroes, you know? So I was like. Well, <laughs> I'm like, nah, I mean, I spent most of my summers in Baltimore. Don't get it twisted. You know, so. Um, right. So, yeah, no, I think there was some times where people initially they judge you based on your resume that you, you know, that you, that comes out in, in natural conversation. Um, but once they get to know you, they're like, oh, well, you know, this person's just, you know, he's just like, you know, like me, you know, so. Mm-hmm. I found that we going um, going to Penn. It was the same kind of thing. People were feeling you out to figure out like whether you were one of these down black folks who, you know, pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and got to Penn. And not everybody, but a lot of people like that were super militant, too. So there was some other things going on there. Or if you were one of the ones who went to boarding school, these really great uh, prep schools. And, you know, I always say and we say on this show a lot that we're not a monolith. And even if that is your resume one way or the other to your earlier point it doesn't mean that you're that guy, right? Um, and, and many of us have diversified experiences. And, you know, I can speak personally to even having been in those environments of people who were super wealthy or, you know, had no kind of connection or understanding of my experience, being really grounded with grandparents who had Southern roots and, you know, family members who may not be similarly situated um, as well. And it's one of the reasons why we do this show is to just show that, you know, you look at somebody's resume and you think, They've got to be X, Y, and Z without any any consideration or appreciation for the nuance that can come uh, with with familial connections and experiences as well. But looking at your story and having a mom in social work and a dad in engineering, were you two very different fields? But were you leaning in either direction professionally? Or did, were you clear about what it was that you wanted to focus on? No, I wasn't. I mean, I think that. Uh, well, no, that's not true. I think that for the most part. Like I said, I always knew I wanted to give back and help other people. And so, but I, I thought about that in terms of um, prospering in my career. Well, I, well, having a career that I can have a certain financial living. And so I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I knew that uh, while I was good at math, I wasn't good at science like my father. And, but I had an uncle, um, like a play uncle, I should say, in town, who was a big time lawyer for Johnson Johnson. And so I saw what he was able to do with his family. So I was like, you know what, maybe I'll be a lawyer. You know, I mean, I'm a, I could speak well, I write well, you know. And so so that was kind of how I saw uh, my career trajectory going. That I was going to be an attorney when I when I went into Duke. So thinking about this attorney thing and clearly let's not bury the lead here, ended up not going fully in that career direction. Um was started on that path, right? So what what was the shift where you were like, mm, this is not necessarily for me? Yeah, so for me, um, so I, I attended Howard University School of Law and, you know, that was interesting. I mean, because, and it's funny when you talk about this dichotomy going to Duke, I more so felt it when I went to Howard Law because mm. I'd, I'd gone to Duke, I'd gone to Penn and, you know, and I don't want to digress from your question, but like people were looking at me like I was a freak, like, why are you here at Howard? And I was like, 
I mean, Thurgood went here, like a lot of great, I mean, like, I think it's a great law school. Like, shouldn't I be, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> you know, but like, but they felt like I should have been at Harvard or somewhere else. So, but um, for me, you know, I had a lot of friends um, who were attorneys and I was an older student. I forget how old it was, but it was 2000. And so all my friends like, are you sure you want to do it? And I'm, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, I want to do it. But I'm thinking more so about the end, the end, the end game. Like, oh, I'm an attorney. I can like have this sort of quality of life. Not thinking about, do I really like it? And so the first year, it wasn't, it wasn't hard, but I realized real quickly, I was like, I don't like this. You know, I don't like this type of writing. Like, whereas here too for, I was like, oh no, this is not going to work. And so, um, you know, for me, I had, uh, and then also because of some of these people you talk about who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, I didn't have a scholarship to do. You know, I had, I mean, I had maybe smaller scholarships, but for the most part, I took out loans. So I had some loans from Duke. I had some loans from grad school. So I said to myself, listen, this is my life. If I know I want to be an attorney, I'm getting out now because that's more debt. And, you know, my parents were heartbroken like because, you know, we'd always talk about being, being an attorney. But I was like, you know, this is not for me. And um, and I got loans to pay back. So, uh, yeah, so I, I, uh, I dropped out of my first year. And, you know, having gone to law school, we we always talk about the people who didn't come back, right? Like what, because oftentimes when people leave, they don't even say why they left. They just fall off the face of the planet, either from first semester or first year. Um, And people leave for many different reasons. Some make the immature decision, like this is not for me. Um, But others are embarrassed that they didn't do as well as they thought they would, or they feel like they're struggling um, and they leave. But I I get contacted often by people who are considering, law school and, you know, young, young, younger than me. And they said, you know, I want to do this. I'm like, okay, what's your motivator? Like, what's your driver uh, to go to law school? And if they're black, nine times out of 10, it's money, right? I, I know lawyers make great money, the job stability, what have you. And I always say, okay, well, there's a couple of things you can consider. Certain types of lawyers make great money, right? So, if you're doing this just for the money, that means you're going into certain fields. And you need to make sure that you're going to be driven. Uh, the money's going to drive you enough, even if you don't enjoy it. That's the first thing. Another thing is exactly what you said. I'm like, you need to really understand what much of being a lawyer is. And so much of it is reading and writing. And in such a dense format, you have to decide that that is for you, right? And oftentimes they don't listen to me and then they get into law school and hate it. And some finish and then they get the job and then it's the golden handcuffs and they don't know know how to pivot um, in that way. But you jumped off the ship early, right? So what was your next plan or did you have one? That's a great question. And you also brought up stuff that not that I really care, but I never really thought about like what other people thought. Like I never thought about that. Like just this is the first time I ever thought about it. like people want to say, oh, what happened to Purnell? Did it? I never really thought about that. But for me, I didn't have a plan. You know, I I um I think uh I just went back into well, I decided I was gonna get into consulting and it was just a little bit challenging from the 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 time, you know, because you know, for certain positions they have a certain point in time where they have open um opportunities to uh, you know, pursue uh a job opportunity. And so I was a server at, at, uh, a, a restaurant called legal seafoods. And so, really, you know, yeah. So, you know, for me, like I've worked a lot of different types of jobs in my life. And so, and, um, you know, my family is, uh, some of my family is West Indian. And so one of my uncles, I always said, 
you know, there's, there's dignity in, in any type of work. And so I've always had that type of like philosophy. And so when I wasn't getting the jobs, I um, said, well, damn, I got to do something. And so, yeah, I was a um, server at a, a legal seafood restaurant in Crystal City. And um, it was challenging, you know, because when you see, you know, people from, and not really from law school, but from people that I had known from when I worked in Capitol Hill and stuff like that, like, oh, well, and I will say this, I don't want to like painting with a broad stroke, like you said, everything's not a model, but I feel like sometimes DC people are very, um, um, what's the word, but they want to like categorize you, you know? And so I felt like people were like, oh, I guess he didn't do well in law school. Oh, you know, he should stay with the political thing. Oh, you know, so it was tough. It was tough, but I knew I was doing the right thing. I mean, I was making, you know, not great money, but you know, decent money being a server. Um, but I did that for a while until, um, Actually, my roommate, an older guy, I was, I was renting a room in someone's house. He helped me get a job through one of his contacts from Exeter um, in a very good uh, consulting firm. So having lived in D.C., uh, it's very small, right? And insular, insular in a lot of ways, particularly amongst Black professionals. Uh, and one of the problems that I had with D.C. was feeling like you did have to fit into a category. Like, are you in the law? Are you a student? Are you in academia? Are you on the Hill? Right. Uh, and if you deviated from that in any way, people kind of cocked an eyebrow at you like, you know, what's really going on? I also know the exact legal seafood you're, you're talking about as well. Um, so you you seem like the kind of guy you've already said, like you weren't thinking about what people thought of you. But internally, having worked in government having these really great degrees and serving people who are coming in and probably have the same credentials as you uh, or, or professionals as, as well. Did it ever get to you just from like an ego driven standpoint? Yeah, no, I mean, I think these are all great questions. I mean, I don't think, um, you know, I don't think I really thought about it when I was going through it. But no, yeah, I mean, I think to a certain degree, it, I was lost, right? So I had said to myself, oh, I was going to be like Uncle Frank. I was going to go be an attorney. I was a president of the Young Lawyers Association High School, did it, you know, and all this stuff is like, okay, so, and now I'm a server. And it wasn't like, oh, well, well like, now I'm like a server. And I, I looked at them um, at a different level. It was just like, okay, well, like you said before, the pivot, like, what's the pivot? And so I really didn't know, you know, and I knew that um, I hadn't really talked, to, I haven't talked about my political background, but I knew I didn't want to go back into politics. Um, I, I did very well, but I just realized it wasn't for me. You know, at one point in my life, I thought, I wanted to um, be a congressman or something like that. And so after working for President Clinton and then working, you know, on Capitol Hill, I saw real quickly, I was like, this, this is not for me. And so, yeah, I felt very lost, you know, when I was a server. I met, I met a lot of great friends and stuff, but it did get to me. And I did say to myself, oh, well, man, if I had stuck with um, being a lawyer, I could be, at, you know, these big firms or Covington and Scadden, like these other people. Because I did okay my first year. But um but then I just had to really, you know, come to my own peace. Just like, you know, the, you know, this is not for me. And um, one thing that my parents also instilled in my, my sister and I was just a, a strong faith in God. And so I was like, you know, like, it's, it's, it's going to work out. And this is just my, you know, this is just a chapter in my life. And so, so yeah, it was, it was tough. It was tough. But like, thankfully, um, my roommate connected me with, um, you know, a great guy who got me into a great consulting firm that really helped change the course of my um, professional life. 
So before we get into the consulting chapter, let's go back and talk about politics. How did you get into the field? What drew you and, and what were you doing once you got there? Yeah, so I think my political journey really started college, right? And so just seeing things that weren't right, you know, for workers on campus, um, for students. And so I was very active in the student government, the Black Student Alliance. Um, you know, my friends and I, we led like sit-ins in the president's office to, to uh, protest different things going Duke workers or Duke Black students. So I think that's kind of like where my, um, you know, my political interest sort of was um Began. And so at that point, I realized that, you know, I don't know what Penn was like in undergrad, but probably similar. Like, so you have all these people who are going on investment banking interviews, doing this, doing that. And I was like, you know, I don't really fit in all that stuff. And so um, President Clinton came down to this um, HBCU NC Central my, my senior year. And, um, you know, I heard him speak. I was like, oh, this guy's interesting. And so um, I said, you know, let me, you know, try to find a way to work for this guy. And so um, I went on my interviews and uh, they went really well. So I was, I was interviewing with the uh, research department just because I was a good writer, a good researcher. And then towards the end of the interview, uh, the guy says, um, you know, do you know Monique Bryce? And I'm like, yeah, it's my sister. He's like, oh, well, you know, you were going to get this job anyway because uh, she, we went to preschool together. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so and I had no idea this guy grew up in my town, you know, and so I was like, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've been, uh, God, God's looked out for me a lot. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So what was that like working under the Clinton administration? You know, it was, it was great. I mean, I think that uh, when you say administration, it's like <sighs> administration is such a broad term. And so I will say working at the Democratic National Committee Research Department, it was good. It was a very small department, um, probably 10 people or so divided between presidential and vice presidential team. And I was on the vice presidential team. And so I dug up dirt on, um, you know, Republican vice presidential candidates um, who were running and um, helped contribute to like 40 reams of research for, for debate prep. Um, and then what I realized at a very young age was like people of color weren't really in these divisions. They weren't really in research. They weren't really in communications. They put them in political, right? Because people are talking about talking now or the last 10, 15 years. Well, why does the um, DNC just come out to the black community like, you know, three weeks before the election? Why? And that's the political department. You know, so when I was working there, and I told this to my parents, I was like, am I working at the RNC or the DNC? Like the stuff that I would hear, I was like, whoa, this is like <laughs> kind of conservative. And so um, so that was tough. You know, I was I was the only black person in the research department, but it really set me up for a lot of stuff just because when you have that skill set and also the type of people that you're working in that department. I mean, these people are like one is like runs research at Facebook. One's like Ryan Warner Brother music right now. So it's a lot of people who have done, who are doing great stuff around the world now. So it really helped um, open a lot of doors, just that, um, that, that, one, that one campaign. Right. And that's what I find, you know, because you hear all these stories that once people have worked in politics, that like they can write their own ticket anywhere, even if it's outside of politics. So I'm even more fascinated by your story in that decided to leave law school and still at first not being able to make something shake despite having these credentials and this experience. 
on your resume as well. But before we move to the consulting piece, I do want to touch a little bit on seeing the things you know, that could be the deficiencies essentially in how politics work. There's sometimes I think when you're, especially when you're a driven person and you are civic minded, there may be a pull to stay to try to implement change or to help to affect change, even if you're the only, right, in a certain department. Did you feel that pressure at all? Or like, even when you left or was thinking about going back um, or maybe not even thinking about it, but knew you didn't want to go back. Was there ever a moment where you said, can I have influence here? And is, is this is the part of the work that I should be doing for the greater good? No, that's a great question. And, um, you know, that was one of the reasons why I worked on Capitol Hill, um, because I wanted to learn more about the way the government works, really just so I could help black people back here in New Jersey. And so um, so that was that was my goal. But, you know, what actually happened was I actually um, got fired. Really? But, yeah. So the thing is what happened, I actually had a job in, 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 and I'll tell you the story. And so what happened was I was working there um, for the senator, um, former senator in New Jersey, uh, Senator Torricelli. And so, you know, I, I um, started off as a legislative correspondent. And one thing that a lot of people don't know, I don't know how it is now, when you start off in some of these Capitol Hill jobs, at least back in um, 96, 97, I was making $18,000 a year. And so, you know, that was a blow too. you have other friends from undergrad, you know, can do stuff. But, you know, for my white colleagues, that was their play money. Right. So their parents were paying for their um, apartments. Their parents were paying for their condos. For me, I was trying to, like, budget my life, you know, with $15,000 a year. And so that was like, you know, very stressful. And so so but I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to bust my butt. I'm going to do well. I'm going to move up. And I didn't see that. And so I saw like some of my colleagues, you know, doing press events, doing this. And so real quickly, I said, you know what? Listen, it's not going to work in this for this member. And I don't even think I like politics. You know, um, I don't think it's the thing for me. So what I did was I stopped. um, Like I said, I was a legislative correspondent. So um, when you get letters from the president or uh, your congressman, someone else writes that. And then they have like an auto pen. Then, you know, you put there and and then they sign it. And so, you know, I just stopped doing my letters. And then, so I said, okay, Pernell, so this is not going to work. So you know you're going to get fired. So you got to think of something else. And so on the side, I was a coach for the Boys and Girls Club. And and uh, it was really weird because it was the Boys and Girls Club in Georgetown. And not that, you know, preppy white kids shouldn't don't need the Boys and Girls Club, but it was like, it was like preppy white kids. But then it was like kids from like Southeast or like Northeast DC. So it was like a really weird um Boys and Girls Club. So I was, you know, I always like to give back. So I was a coach there. And so I got really cool with this one kid and his father, who was like a big time lobbyist in D.C. And so we got to talking and got to talking. And so, you know, each day as, as my letters were piling up, I was like, you know what, I got to find something. So I said to this guy, hey, listen, you know, um, I'd love to become a lobbyist in your firm. And so typically lobbyists, you know, have, you know, eight to 10 years Hill experience, right? So it's because lobbying is really just about connections. Like you have a certain level of, um, you have a network within a certain industry and, you know, a certain number of um, level of experience of how the process works um, to uh, affect change and pass bills for your clients. And so I didn't have that. I had only worked on the Hill for like two and a half, three years. And so long story short, you know, the guy was like, well, yeah, sure. You know, I'll give you the opportunity, but you have to get through my partners. And so I was like, okay. And so, um, you know, it all came down to, they were like, well, why should we hire you? You don't have 10 years. And I just, I don't know what I said. I think I was just like, you know, eight years, 10 years. Don't you want somebody who's had like very, very strong connections in like 
two or three years. And, and so that was like my argument. And so, and so maybe you should have been a lawyer, but anyway, continue. And so the day that I get fired, you know, um, they, someone calls and they say, Oh, you know, Jamie wants to see you. So he's the chief of staff. So they close the door and like, listen, they, they, people wanted me to like get into politics. They used to, um, try to blow smoke up my butt. They're like, Oh, you know, you could be better. At that time, Cory Booker was a, a councilman. They're like, Oh, you could be as good as Corey or better. Da, da, da. And I was like, mm. so that day they're like, you know, Purnell, listen, you're going to get fired today. Sorry. And so, but we really like you. And, but we want you to, we want to help put out a good story for you. So what do you want us to say? What do you want us to tell everybody? I said, well, actually, um, I have a job at Manette Phelps and Phillips. Um, here's my card. I'm going to be at 15th and L Street. And, you know, like, they're blown away. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> and so. Hysterical. Yeah. And so that, that's, that. so while I would have loved to have stayed and, and helped people, it's just a very hostile um work environment, you know, lack of promotions. And um, I just didn't see it. Like, as I tell people, if I could have worked for like Senator Obama or something like that, man, I would have stayed on Capitol Hill. I mean, that's, you know, he's, he was, a, you know, from what I heard from people I know who worked for him, he's just a great guy to work for. So yes, I would have loved to have stayed on Capitol Hill, but um, yeah, no, nah, I got fired and I had to get out. So, but you transitioned to the, to lobbying and how was that? It was interesting. I mean, I think with lobbying too, it's like, who are you lobbying for, right? And so I was working at a big firm. And so, you know, one client was like, um, like, uh, what was it, Papua Guinea? Um, I forget, a couple of small countries in Africa where it was just like dictators and just like, I was like, this just is terrible. You know, like we're helping these people, you know, cut these deals. So that just felt weird. Um, then you get a couple of nonprofit clients, so you feel a little bit better. But um, no. And then it just wasn't really intellectually stimulating for me. It's just like, OK, who do you know? Let's look at the bill. Let's rewrite it for us. Done. And I, and that's not like that doesn't stimulate me. I need like a little bit more of a challenge. And so, you know, I don't knock people who lobby, you know, they make good money and they help um you know, they help legislators because they don't have time to read through a lot of these bills. But for me, I knew that that wasn't going to be a long stop. That was me kind of um, um, raising money for grad school. So I knew that I, I knew I was going to be going to grad school. And so that was me just saving up. Gotcha. So and just to go back to something else you said about people working in politics, but their their parents bankrolling them. I remember like being in law school and, you know, many of us are there on some form of loans, right? If we're not completely financing it, you know, through loans, both education and living expenses, at least a portion of it. And I remember kind of looking at some of my classmates and saying like, okay, are they just better at budgeting than me? Because this money is not stretching in DC the way it's supposed to. And then hearing these stories where they'd be like, yeah, I'm on loans, but my dad has access to my accounts and he gets a notification if it drops before below a certain amount. And he just replenishes the money. And I'm like, okay, so I'm not fiscally irresponsible. I'm just broke. Like, I just, I don't have those resources available to me. And and that's another thing that speaks to the inequality in terms of access to opportunity and being able to thrive as well. Because if you take the financial element out of it and you're literally just there for the passion of it or because you enjoy it or because you want the experience and you have that financial support, there's just different opportunities and there's a different, commitment to the longevity of it and and sticking with it that you just don't have when that financial stress is not there. Yeah, no, that's a hundred percent. Like, um, 
when I was there, uh, one of my close friends, she's a congresswoman now, um, Ayanna Presley, you know, we became really close around that time. And, you know, she, she, you know, she started off as a, um, what's the term? But anyway, she was a secretary for John Kerry, um, scheduler rather. She was scheduler. And so, um, you know, it was good that I could kind of connect with her because, yeah, you're not making a lot of money. And we always talked about like creating an internship program for, you know, students of color, a paid internship program for students of color from either PWIs or HBCUs, because, yeah, you know, you would never get that opportunity to, to, to do this. And like, as you know, in any industry, when you get an internship, that, that's like your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so when I was working on Capitol Hill, like, the people who are my interns, I mean, these kids, like, you know, they they, they could have done anything. You know, it's like she, this Sheik's son and this politician's son, this investment banker's son, and, you know, this CEO's son and her daughter. So, um, you know, just very disheartening not to see, you know, people who look like you get those opportunities. Um, one, because they don't have the network or two, they just know that they can't just do a summer, uh, a free summer, you know? Right, exactly. And I definitely want to get into... The work you've done in philanthropy and nonprofit, the nonprofit space as well. But before we get there, consulting can mean a lot of things, right? So fast forwarding back to you getting this opportunity, um, what did a consulting career look like for you? Yeah. So for me, I realized that, well, I realized that I wanted to, I didn't want to do the traditional consulting. And so I had friends that worked for these big firms, you know, you know, Bain and um, Accenture and all that stuff. Um, But I knew that I was a good problem solver and I could help people. And so my roommate, um, he connected me with uh, one of his friends from, from uh, prep school. And it was, um, it was a firm called SRI and SRI is a research consulting firm. And I didn't know anything about a research consulting firm. And so they're based out of Palo Alto and, um, but I worked in the, the uh, DC Roslyn office. And so they, they've done a lot of great things. Like they invented the mouse and they do this and that. And so I was in the economic development and education evaluation um, arm of the, con- of the consulting firm. And so some of our clients were, were countries, some of our co- clients were university systems, and then some of our clients were nonprofits like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And so that's kind of how I pivoted into nonprofits. So what I was doing was I was evaluating all of, all of Bill and Melinda Gates um, Foundation's um, early college high schools that they're building around the country. So early college high schools where kids could go from high school and get their associates in like like five years or so. So the idea was to lessen the financial burden of them going to college, to shorten it. Um, and so for me, I didn't know anything about foundations. Obviously, that's the biggest one in the world. But, you know, I was like, oh, OK, these people are doing good stuff and people seem to have a decent quality of life. And so that was kind of like my first introduction uh, into philanthropy. <laughs> Got it. And you eventually left the consulting space and really moved into nonprofit work full time. So what was that shift like? Yeah. So I um, decided that I wanted to stay in the space and I moved back to New Jersey and I kind of fell into um, an entrepreneurship nonprofit. And which seemed like now and I think about it, it's kind of serendipitous just because I've always had a passion for entrepreneurship. So it was an it was a nonprofit focusing on incubating um, youth entrepreneurs. And so it's called um, Nifty, um, the network for teaching entrepreneurship. And so I was a program director there and, um, you know, just trying to get more entrepreneurship programs in different schools around New York City. 
And so, you know, I did, I was doing that for a while. And, and then, you know, at some point it clicked to me that, you know, and then after that I left, I was kind of doing my own nonprofit consulting um, because I thought I was smart enough to do it on my own. And then I just realized like, you know what, if I, if I really want a a proper career in this industry, I need to like, kind of, you know, have the right um, things on my resume, you know, so fundraising, um, program development, program management. And so, so then I I began a career in nonprofit. So I worked for the Girl Scouts, um, which was very, which was a great experience. I worked for a large nonprofit at, um, at Harlem, Northside Center for Child Development. Um, so I did that. And then I worked for a smaller one in, in New Jersey, um, focused on entrepreneurship in Newark. And, um, after that I, I ran, uh, a tech entrepreneurs um, private foundation for about five or six years. And um, then I ran another uh, fund um, started by uh, Lupe Fiasco and uh, one of the founders of the Waze Navigation app. They started a fund called the Neighborhood Star Fund. And so I ran that for them too. And uh, yes, I've been on philanthropy for a while. So one of the things... uh that I discovered in the last 10 years, right? Because a lot of times you look at nonprofits, particularly nonprofits that are doing really cool things that people find uh, sexy, for lack of a better word, or like really uh, on target in terms of what's popular in the moment. And people just assume that the environment is like everybody is just bleeding hearts. They're really driven and ambitious and they want to help the world and everybody gets along and it's very kumbaya. What I know to be true is that some nonprofits have toxic environments uh, in ways that are probably worse than corporate <laughs> or politics. Um, and there's a lot that goes on in, on the, in the underbelly that people may not know about. In your experience, have you seen the dark side of nonprofit work or have you had pretty positive experiences throughout this, this chapter of your career? No, it's been a disaster. And so, um, you know, you know, when you, when you, when you bring that up, I was like, you know, having like flashbacks and like, you know, chills. And so, um, no, I mean, uh, yeah, you know, I think from one, and I've worked at big and small nonprofits, right? So the Girl Scouts, it's very corporate, you know, it's a very, very, you know, it's, it's, it's national. So that, that was a pretty good experience because, to a certain degree, they're organized, right? And so, you know, I don't know if you know a lot about nonprofits, but a lot of nonprofits are just kind of disorganized. Yeah. They're, not, they're not run like businesses. And so they have a great mission, but they don't realize like at the end of the day, you're a business too. And so they're, they're not organized. They're not run well. And so again, the Girl Scouts was a pretty good experience. I mean, there was, you know, some challenges there, but I think, it, you know, no, nothing like any other job. Um, so overall, I think that was good. But some of the smaller nonprofits uh, where they don't really have an HR or like the HR is also the executive director, um, you know, it's just kind of crazy. And so, um, yeah, you know, like I said, they're not organized. So just in terms of uh, making sure the environment is reflective of the mission that they're that they're pursuing. Um, and then also, like, listen, you know, now that I think about it, even even Girl Scouts. At the end of the day, well, not all philanthropy, but at the end of the day, a lot of philanthropy is about giving back. And a lot of it's about giving back to under-resourced, underserved, under whatever they want to say, underdeveloped. And it's like people that look like us. And so, but when you don't see people advancing and in that leadership um, roles, that's a problem. And so, and then also males too. Like I felt that from the get-go, I kind of scanned things real quickly. I'm like, oh, wow, there's not a lot of 
males and there's not a lot of black males. I was like, oh, okay. And so, but it didn't deter me. I just said, you know, I'm going to still pursue it. But um, I've always noticed that in terms of philanthropy, and it's got a little bit better, but there hasn't been a lot of diversity in leadership roles, particularly when a lot of these organizations are, you know, working in communities of color. Yeah. And I've alluded to this, people, unless they know me really well and have listened and pieced it all together through my story, through interviews, they won't know. But at some point in my legal career, I'd sort of gotten burnt out on the law and said, you know what, maybe I need to focus on my passions and and give back and went into the nonprofit space uh, working with another nonprofit. And it was by far the worst experience of my professional career. For all the reasons that you mentioned it, you know, the lack of infrastructure, no HR, shifting priorities and goals consistently, uh, a bit of a savior complex or paternalistic view of things at the top, no representation and, you know, executive leadership of the people that they're serving. All for all of those reasons, I was like, this is horrible. Like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. I thought we were going to be saving the world. Now I'm trying to save myself to get out of here. <laughs> it was literally the worst experience of my entire professional career. So, and not to say that there aren't uh, organizations out there doing amazing work, but there are many that just are dysfunctional and not sure. a good professional experience uh, for sure. But let's talk about your current role, uh, Sips and Kicks. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so Sips and Kicks uh, is a foundation founded by, by my good friend, uh, Chad Dichtenberg, and um, he's a former Division One soccer player. And the focus is is uh, instilling, um, you know, positive uh, eating habits uh, for, you know, under-resourced youth um, through the power of healthy fruit and vegetable smoothies, um, and also encouraging um, vigorous uh, physical activity through the power of soccer. And so basically we connect with schools, it's all free, and we, we provide uh, free soccer training through um, MLS, our partnership with MLS teams through New York Red Bulls and um, NYCFC, the New York City Football Club. And then um, at the end of the uh, uh, session, we provide them with uh, smoothies for them and, and then for their families as well. Mm-hmm. And you also still do some consulting work. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, like I said, uh, and I think you said it, you're like, you know, some people, when they come to you about being, you know, going to law school, you sometimes, you know, want to, or maybe it wasn't you, but someone I was talking to was saying that, you know, sometimes they wonder, should I have gone to law school? Should I have gone to business school? And for me, I realized like, probably the last seven to 10 years, like, you know, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I mean, I've always done, you know, started businesses when I was a kid to, you know, college, I was a DJ, just a whole bunch of stuff. And so um, right now I have a few social entrepreneurship ventures that I'm working on, but I also do entrepreneurship coaching. And so I coach about 10 to 12 entrepreneurs. And actually Takoa is, is someone who I kind of coach informally. We're just good friends. And so she's very busy. So sometimes I don't get her and her partner on a call. But, you know, I, I you know, I put little nuggets in her ear and do this and do that. And so, um, but yeah, I have a company called Good Good Energy. So speaking to you balancing both, I know there are people who listen to the show who are very passionate about philanthropy and working in the nonprofit space but for financial reasons, feel like they can't go down that path. What would your advice be as someone who is managing both things? uh, What would your advice be to someone who's looking to work in the nonprofit space, but is also concerned about monetizing and being fiscally secure as well? 
Yeah, I would say first um, talk to people who are in it, you know, whether it's somebody like me, talk to people who didn't have a good good experience like you. Um, and then uh, what I also say is like, listen, if you are passionate, if you are really passionate about something, um, why not? first start like your own project, right? So um, if you're making a decent amount of money, whatever career you are, you know, why not set aside a thousand, two thousand and, you know, try to figure out a project in that arena that you want to potentially work in. And, you know, what I'm saying is a project rather than creating your own foundation or nonprofit, because you don't want to necessarily go down that road if you're not really into it. So, you know, create like your own project. Oh, I want to help these type of kids or the kids in this area or, or these senior citizens or these adults, um, you know, you could, you know, one thing too is like, if you want to do something, it's always good to have a little skin in the game. And so, you know, I tell people, you know, why don't you put down a thousand, two thousand and then do like your own um, crowdfunding thing. And then, you know, raise another, you know, 3000 and then maybe you organize something, you know, a few times a month. And then you can get really get a sense of like, oh, okay, is this what I want to do? You learn about what it takes to like, run the program, you know, is it having impact? And that's kind of like a micro way of like um, understanding, is this for me? Could I see myself doing this full time? Um, and, you know, learn a little bit about how it works. Because really like nonprofit work, it's it's not very difficult. You know, it's just about having the passion and being organized. And um, yeah, just uh, putting out a good product for the clients that you're serving. And so if you're not having that impact with your clients, um, you're not going to have the the numbers to show and you won't be able to raise money. And so, so yeah, I always tell people to talk to people and then start small, you know, whether it's um, volunteering, um, you know, or whatever you want to do. And I think I'm glad you brought that up because I think particularly for the kind of person that listens to our show, we're big dreamers. We want to do everything at 130%. We want to knock it out of the park. But to raise money, you can raise money for a, a specific focus campaign because the people you know, your colleagues and your friends and your family, they're going to support you and say, oh, you know, I'll give some money to that. You may even get some sponsorship. But raising money to have the infrastructure and the workforce to have a full-time endeavor is a whole different ballgame. And I think sometimes people have this idealized view of like, I want to start this nonprofit. I'm going to raise money. And people love to throw grant writing around. There are all these grants. I'm going to get a grant and it's all going to be great. And one of the things, while I hated my experience in uh, the nonprofit space, one of the things that I was very fascinated by was the executive director's ability to raise money. But it was a constant churn constant relationship building, constantly selling people. You know, there was a grant writer. Yes, she's constantly writing. That is, there's a political element to fundraising as well. And I think sometimes people just don't take the, take the time to think about what it takes to sustain something on a full-time, uh, large-scale basis, as opposed to having project-based where you raise a little bit, learn a little bit, raise a little bit, learn a little bit, and put that out there and grow from there. No, it's a hundred percent, you know, and um, yeah, like to really decide to launch like a full scale nonprofit. I mean, like, yeah, it's a lot of work. I mean, you have to build a team, you have to uh, build up the relationships with the people who you want to serve. Like, you know, what people don't understand is that a lot of people start stuff and they don't finish it, you know? So it's not just like, oh, I want to do this for you. Some people may not want your help. 
you know, and so you right. have to you have to take the time to, you know, build the connections, build a relationship, build the infrastructure and then raise the money. And so, you know, and then what, you know, what you learn after a while is you really want to get like multi-year, you know, support, right? You know, it's like, like you said, it's a constant churn. Like if you're just doing individual donors or just, you know, one-offs, you know, you're looking for the two-year, three-year grants, but that takes time. Like those people want, they want to see certain types of numbers and certain types of impact. Absolutely. So shifting gears a bit, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Yeah. I mean, well, listen, I think for me, you know, um, I have an interesting career trajectory and in that I've had a, a number of ups and downs. And so I think with Girl Scouts, you know, like different, you know, jobs, they were downsizing. And um, yeah, the day before I just proposed to my wife. And so we had all these plans and we had put down money on certain things and it was really scary, you know, because, you know, I was making decent money at Girl Scouts and I mean, I don't want to um, pay with a broad brush, but, you know, most people, women per se, want stability, you know? And so you propose to yeah. someone like, you know, like, oh, well, you know, listen, I, all that stuff I said to you on my knee yesterday, well, I just lost my job. <laughs> so, um, so, but I had to, um, you know, I just have very good intestinal fortitude. And so I had to, I didn't have to sell too hard because, you know, my wife, she definitely supports me, but just to really let her know that, you know, everything that we talked about, we're still going to do in terms of, you know, getting married or where we're going to live and certain things. And I had to really um, activate my network um, to find freelance and other things because I, I, I really didn't find a, a full-time job until probably after the wedding, you know, so it was, really? yeah, yeah, it was, it was very stressful. And so, you know, I had some savings, which was good. Um, and they owed me a few checks, but, um, yeah, no, I didn't get a job probably until that next, we got married in September, probably like that February after we got married. So that was, um, yeah, that was, that was, that was a little scary. That was a little scary. Let me ask you this as a man going into this marriage and not yet locking down a full-time job, was there any reticence on your part? Like maybe we need to step back for a second. You know, no, I, no, no, there wasn't. I guess for me, uh, I just had to believe that it was going to work out. Um, luckily, I had a, a woman who was, even though she worked in corporate, um, you know, worked for Essence or whatever, she was just very supportive of me, you know, and she was very calming. You know, that's the thing. Like, it could have gone two different ways, right? It could have been like, oh, well, this ring's nice, but like, maybe you're not the guy <laughs> or like, <laughs> or, or something, you know, but she was very calming. And she said, you know, I know you're going to find something and, you know, I know you got savings and I got money. We're going to, you know, we're going to get through this. And so, yeah, it never really occurred to me, like, take a step back. I just, um, you know, I was just very passionate about her. This was actually my second marriage. I was married for uh, a really quick year, my first marriage. You, you, you just dropped a truth bomb all of a sudden at the end of the interview. <laughs> and so, um, so I knew that she was definitely, you know, yeah, second time around. So I knew that she was the one. And so, um, so yeah, so I felt very confident that it was going to work out and her support, you know, really helped, helped to, uh, steady the, um, steady the, the waves. Mm -hmm. Now, before I let you get out of here, I know you have a goal of starting a black VC firm. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, got some guy Raz research here. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> so, 
I didn't know I was going to come up. So yeah, no. So for me, I, uh, when I was doing, um, when I was running this private foundation called the dream big foundation, our focus was incubating entrepreneurs in underserved areas. And so the area that we were focusing on, um, an area of Brooklyn called Brownsville. And so Brownsville, I don't know if you're aware of it. It's just, it's a challenging area. It's very small. You know, it's like, uh, 10 or 12 blocks by 12 blocks. It's like a square, but they have the highest concentration of projects in the nation. Um, and just a lot going on. And so, you know, we did some great things. We built like the first cafe in the area and we incubated probably about mm, 40 to 50 entrepreneurs. And so going through that experience, but then also working at the neighborhood star fund, you know, I've built up a really good understanding of not just what it takes to, to run a startup, um, but also seeing that unless you look a certain way, unless your name has a certain last name, you're not getting any money from Silicon or a lot of places. And that's just that's just it. And I mean, I've seen people with like just some terrible, I won't say terrible, but just pitches that are just aren't great. And, and, they, and they don't even show any profitability. Right. right. And so um, going through that experience and um, just passionate about helping people, uh, my friend who was also an entrepreneur. And who's gone through a lot of these different accelerators in Silicon Valley, all over the country, and only got like a little bit of money. You know, we both said, you know, why don't we start like a VC um, for color? So what we're going to do is, which will be a little bit different, since I have a very circuitous kind of like background, I realized that entrepreneurship flows in a number of areas. Starting a nonprofit, you have to be an entrepreneur. Being a filmmaker, you're an entrepreneur. Being, you know, going to music, you're an entrepreneur. So our VC is really for people, um, not just in the, you know, tech space or whatever, but it's for people who have entrepreneurial aspirations in a number of different fields. And so, um, yeah, we're really excited about it. And so we are, we kind of put that on hold for a little bit just because we're working to um, start um, a voting rights platform where, you know, if you put in your zip code, you can figure out who's on your ballot. And, and that's one piece of it, you know, so, you know, through my political experience, you know, this, this Trump era has just been like, um, it's just shell shocking, you know, just to see how the country has kind of devolved. And so I said to myself, what can I do to like help people? So this like doesn't happen again. Right. And so I feel that not just people, of color, but just a lot of people just don't know how the political process works, right? And from a basic level, um, in terms of like who to vote for, right? People are busy, you know, you MTA driver or your CEO, people are just busy. So you don't have time, you're like, oh, well, who's running for school board or who's, so So that that's like one thing that we decide that, you know, we're going to, you could put in your zip code and, you know, tell you who is running, but it will also tell you like why that position um, is important to your quality of life why your assemblyman is important to your quality of life, why your state senator, because a lot of people, you know, vote for presidential, but they don't vote for any of these other elections. And so given um, everything going on, um, we decided, and we didn't get it up for this election. We're going to get it up um, first quarter next year, for the New York City mayoral election. Um, we realized that people just don't, they, they need to vote and they don't understand like why certain things are because you don't vote. And so um, that should be up pretty soon. And um, so it's it's three of us. It's um, my friend who's a, a tech co-founder and um, this young uh, sister who's a PhD, a history, um, PhD, a political PhD student at University of New Hampshire, but she's also from Brownsville. 
And so, yeah, we're actively pursuing that because we know it'll have a, a strong impact. But um, probably around third quarter next year, we hope to launch our VC. You know, probably, you know, we're probably not going to be able to raise as much as we want. But the thing is, we know we have a lot of knowledge. So we'll probably start a lot of classes, um, a lot of consulting. And like I said, in these variety of entrepreneurial um, industries. Absolutely. Now, I wasn't going to get political in this this interview, but since you brought up the way this country has devolved, are you hopeful uh, about this election coming up in the next few weeks, that the tide's going to turn? The polls, you know, show Biden leading. Uh, you know, everyone that has come out. But we know that that Hillary was leading four years ago as well in the polls and everybody thought it was a slam dunk. So I'm a bit on edge, uh, for lack of a better term. How are you feeling about it? Yeah, for me, I think I'm pretty hopeful. I think Biden's going to win just because of um, just of the the morass that we're in as a country. And I think as someone put it, best. I don't know who said that. They said that we've had enough of Archie Bunker. We just need a little Mr. Rogers now. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, you can't walk away from 200,000 plus deaths. I mean, I think that's like a really big issue that is going to be hard for him to walk away from. Um, but what I will say is this, and this is also why, and not just in terms of why I'm starting the platform, but why, you know, I'm focused on my entrepreneurship stuff or the people that I work with, What's been good or bad about this administration is it's really opened the eyes to people say like, oh, well, OK, you know. And so even if Trump loses, some of that sentiment is still going to be here. You know, some of those same people are still going to be here. So it's like you have to organize politically. You have to, you know, whether it's the black community, you have to really focus on um, empowering um, collectively. And so, yes, I'm hopeful uh, fairly, I will not say confident, but I'm very hopeful that Senator, um, Vice President Biden will win. But I know that there's work to do. And, you know, not just in terms of what we've seen uncovered, but then also just making sure that um, we hold Biden and, um, you know, Kamala Harris accountable um, for what we need, you know, because, you know, everyone else does it. You know, it's it's not um, personal. It's uh, just business, you know, that. Um, the Jewish community, the Asian community, you know, LGBT, everyone holds people accountable. You know, that's what you should do. And so um, I am very hopeful, um, but I know that, you know, that there's still going to be work to do. Absolutely. Now, if people want to learn more about the work that you do, either in the philanthropic space or by way of consulting, where can they find you online? Um, well, they can um, send me an email uh, and they can send it to uh, my first name, Purnell, uh, P-E-R-N-E-L-L dot Bryce, B-R-I-C-E at gmail.com. I don't have my website yet up for uh, good energy, but that'll be up very soon. Um, but yeah, that's how they can uh, reach out to me directly. And I'm always um, open for a chat. So you kept the streak going uh, for Tacoa's referrals and, and gave a great interview. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Now we know you have a, a couple of kids to get to as well. Uh, So we'll let you get back to daddy duty, but I I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. To our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. If you are curious to know more about what Purnell does or his work uh, in the nonprofit space, please feel free to reach out to him. As always, you know, we're nothing without you liking, sharing and subscribing to the podcast. So please tell somebody about this episode if you've enjoyed it. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care.
Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa, and music was provided by Tovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 